The reading for today comes from Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated, and as you're seated, um, I'm Brant, one of the members of the team here, and it's my joy to bring the word. Would you pray with me as we jump into it? Uh, Father, we, we thank you. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it uh, encourages us, it challenges us, uh, it strengthens us. Uh, It's used by you to to change the way that we think, the way that we behave, the way that we live on this earth in relationship with you. And Lord, we just ask that you would right now, that you would cause your your word to go forth in such a way that it's received by our hearts, by your Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Lord, that we would uh, really be cut to the quick, challenged to put our faith in Jesus and to trust in you for our freedom. And we just ask this, In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, as we begin, there's a word that we're going to talk about. Freedom. Freedom. I'm wondering, is there a word that has equal weight that's associated with it in the whole of the history of humankind? Freedom. Humanity longs for freedom. And of course, we see this a number of ways throughout history and in our, our media and in our history books. And one of them, of course, is the immortal Mel Gibson as he portrays William Wallace. Freedom! You know, get the, get the roar going there. And they're, they're fight for independence from Britain. They're fight for freedom for Scotland. And we see it in the way that our modern democracies have been built on this foundation stone of freedom. Certain inalienable rights, certain freedoms that we believe are the rights of human beings. We see it in the hope of every revolution that's ever been. The hope for freedom, the hope for freedom from oppressors. But here's the thing. From the Magna Carta to the Communist Manifesto, how successful have we been? Have any charters of freedom or any champions of freedom actually brought us into a utopian age of freedom? Sure, we have freedoms today. We live in a liberal democracy after all, literally a free democracy. But despite the freedoms that we we think we have, we still have this problem on our hands, at least every time we open up the newspaper and we read about what's happening in this world. Despite our freedom, we open up the newspaper and we see a world that's Torn apart, full of bitterness and hatred. People, I mean, if you follow politics, it's amazing. People just can't seem to get along. Can't seem to have a common vision for the future. 
And we wonder, despite all of our freedoms, there's something that's deeper, maybe even inside of us and in our societies that holds us down in slavery. We've thrown off one form of tyranny, sure. We don't have a, a king telling us what to do, but we're still not free, not truly. Somehow evil still exists and holds us down. So are we out of luck? Are we hopeless? Is freedom nowhere to be found? Not at all. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, Paul draws together the, the threads of his argument that he's been making to the Galatians in order to teach us that, that freedom is found in one place, under one champion, under one gospel. And it's available for all who deeply long for it. For freedom, Christ has set you free. That's the hope we're going to talk about this morning, that freedom. And as we jump in to this text this morning, I do think, though, that it would be helpful to give a little bit of a summary. We've come a long way in the letter to the Galatians. We've begun all the way in chapter 1. We've, we've made some progress, but maybe we should remind ourselves of where we're at in Paul's discussion here at the beginning of chapter 5 as he starts a new section. Well, the big idea is that Paul's writing this letter, right, because he's concerned that the Galatians have, believing, have been believing the gospel about Jesus the wrong way. He's concerned that rather than the gospel that he taught them of you are saved, you're reconciled to God, you're changed from the inside out in relationship with him merely by your faith and your trust in Jesus and what he has done that you never could do. And they've now been believing this false message from these Jewish false teachers that have been saying, actually, there's a lot more to it than that, guys. What you really need to do is start following these laws. You need to get circumcised. You need to do all these different things, and then you'll really walk in the freedom and the goodness of a relationship with God. Do all these extra things. Take this burden on. And in the first two chapters of Galatians, Paul just throws down his gospel gauntlet straight on the ground. And he says, look, there's no other gospel than the one that I've been preaching to you. There isn't another one. If you're believing something else, it's just not true. It's not going to save you. It's not a gospel. And then in chapter 3, Paul defends that gospel that he preached from the Bible as he quotes different Jewish false teachers' favorite verses in the Bible against them. And he shows them that actually even the guys that you hold up as, as examples of those who've earned a righteous favor from God and have got his promises from God because of it, by their earning, that's not the case at all. It's not that Abraham worked really hard or did the right things that he earned God's promises. It's that God promised it to him and he received it by faith, by trust, period. And then the majority of chapter 4, as he moves on, Paul argues for freedom then from the Jewish law. Look, the Jewish law is just going to imprison you. Don't live under the law. You're free from that. And then now, finally, this new section in chapter 5 to 6, Paul keeps up this conversation about freedom and slavery, but he talks about freedom in a slightly different light. He starts to move the conversation in a different direction, saying you're free from laws into a relationship with God so that you can now be free in a life that's lived by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's really what he's going to be pressing home, this freedom to live in the power of the Holy Spirit for the next couple of chapters. So as we jump into this new section in the letter this morning, we're going to look at verses 1 to 6, and we're going to see a few things. We're going to see the way that Paul calls the church to freedom in the gospel by showing them a couple of different things. Number one, that you are called to be free. That that's what the gospel is all about. Number two, yet, despite being called to free freedom, you're tempted to be enslaved. 
you, like the Galatians, are tempted to be enslaved. And then ultimately, uh, point three, it's freedom in Jesus alone that actually makes you righteous. So called to freedom, tempted to slavery, and then set free for righteousness. Those are our three points this morning. So look with me at our first point, called to freedom in verse one of chapter five. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What is the gospel? The gospel is a message of freedom to humanity that it's st- to humanity stuck in a world of death and sin. Paul said the same sort of thing using different language in chapter 1, verse 4. He said, Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us. Isn't that the language of freedom? To be delivered from something? To deliver us from what? From this present evil age. And then, of course, Paul uses that word age not to refer to, hey, guys, it's been a rough couple of generations, I know. Or he's not even using it to say, hey, guys, I know it's been a rough couple hundred years. He's using it to refer to the way that all of humanity has been held under in this slavery in an evil age ever since our first parents sinned. All the way up into the coming of Jesus Christ, the deliverer, the rescuer. But that being said, you might wonder what exactly we're talking about here. Maybe, maybe you're thinking, okay, Brent, that's, that's kind of fine, but really, I don't feel enslaved. I don't feel that I need this freedom. I don't feel like Vancouver is stuck in an evil age, needing the freedom of the gospel that we're talking about here. After all, isn't it the, the baseline assumption of our society that we are free? Again, you know, we talked about we live in a liberal democracy. I am free to run my life where I want to, to pursue whatever desire I think will work out in my life to move me from where I am to happiness. That's just the presupposition of the world that we live in. And perhaps no one's expressed that, that sentiment of freedom that I, I'm the one who's in charge better than Ernest Henley in the last stanza of his poem Invictus. He wrote famously, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. But here's the question this morning. Are you the captain of your fate? Are you the master of your soul? Or are there things that are even within you that come on board the ship from down below and grab hold of the helm and steer the ship maybe in a place in a direction that you don't actually think would be best for you? Is that the case? Does that happen? I think it does. I think there are many things that do that in our life. And one of the most significant things that that keeps us from true freedom is our desiring. It's our wanting. A study in 2012 conducted by Wilhelm Hoffman and Roy Baumeister outfitted 205 adults with beepers. A beeper is uh, is a Stone Age cell phone, for those of you that don't know. And and these beepers were attached to these people, and they were set to go off periodically throughout the day. And when they went off, the researchers asked these 205 adults to record their present desiring. 
and to record maybe the desiring of the last 30 minutes and to write it in a journal and also to answer a set of questions about those desires. So after a week went by of uh, them having these beepers go off annoyingly and having to write in their journals, they went and they, uh, the, the researchers went and collected the data. And this is what they found as summarized by Cal Newport. They found people fight desires all day long. Desire turned out to be the norm, not the exception. The five most common desires these subjects fought include, not surprisingly, eating, sleeping, and sex. But the top five list also included desires for taking a break from work, checking email and social networking sites, the Facebook call lives on, surfing the web, listening to music, or watching television. And what these psychologists discovered, it might seem pretty obvious to us. Like, that's not really a great discovery. But it is significant, because what they found is that Throughout all of our lives, we're actually bombarded with desires. We're bamboozled by our desires, accosted by them. And they, they often pull us off course and move us even against our reasoning and our thinking towards our wanting. This is why Virginia Woolf could say, to enjoy freedom, we have to control ourselves. But that's not an easy thing to do, is it? As those desires climb up out from the bottom of the ship and, like I said, grab hold of that helm. Even when we're least expecting it and pull us off course. And, of course, the desires in the experiment, I mean, that's not an exhaustive list of desires, is it? There's many, many more. And many of those desires are pretty benign, really, if we look at them. But if this is true, if desires can pull us off course out of our thinking towards our wanting, is it not also true that, that there are desires that are much less benign in us? We have evil or wicked desires that, that grab a hold of our hearts and pull us away from what is good. The reality is that far from being free, these not good desires, they pull us away from what is ultimately good and even best for us. So if you think I'm crazy here, let's just take a moment to let this sink in personally into our lives. How free are you really? Think about this with me. How free are you really to truly love people? Sure, you might think it's a good idea to love people, right? I mean, that's, that seems like a pretty normal, good thing to think. But if you had a recording of your relationships on display before you, what would it say about you? If those closest to you were asked to to ask about you and about how you actually live in relationship to them, would it show you that you live by what you think is best or by something else and more sinister? How free are you? Do you think it would be good to be self-possessed and to control your actions in a given moment? But do you find that there's actions in your life, there's habits in your life that you are the slave of? You're not in control of at all. How free are you? Do you think about the way that you ought to speak and the way that it would be good to speak, but find that your tongue gets the better of you? You find that you, you lash out, speak out of churn. You say things that you deeply regret, not infrequently. How free are you? Do you think lofty thoughts about organization and productivity in your life but then you just kind of sit back on the couch and watch some Marie Kondo on repeat. Or do you think productivity would be great, but, you know, here I, I know I should get to my studies, but now I get to my dorm room. And the last thing that I'm going to do is study. 
How free are you? Are you a slave to porn? Are you a slave to lust? Are you a slave to objectifying the human beings around you as objects of your fantasy? Rather than treating them as the people that they are, those that are created in God's image and likeness, worth more than you could possibly imagine. How free are you? Does your consumption control you, or do you control your consumption? How free are you? Maybe you see people that are loving and selfless around you, and you recognize, man, those loving, selfless people are pretty great. I'd sure like to be like them. But how free are you to do it? Do you find that no matter how hard you try, you're stuck in your myopic little universe, thinking thoughts of you and self, staring at your toes and your, your own navel, and that's all you do? You can't get out of it. When we stop to think about it, it's pretty depressing. We stop to think when there's a lull in our lives and we're forced to contend with who we really are, it can be hard because I think we find the reality is that I'm not nearly as free as I think I am. And don't get me wrong, I think that we always do what we want. But because of sin, what we want isn't good. We aren't free to do what we know is best because deeper than our knowing is our desiring. And it steers the ship. And what we desire is so often wrong. So contrary to human beings thinking they're absolutely free as the captain of their destiny, the Bible says something different. It teaches that we're slaves of our desires. We're slaves of living in a way that is against God and his good purposes. The things that would be best for us, the things that we're created to do that we know are good, and instead, we're a slave to what the Bible calls sin. Jesus says it this way in John eight thirty four: Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin, anyone who is doing the things that we just went through that list and talked about, finds habits of sin in their lives, is a slave of sin. That's hard. So where is their hope? Our hope is to be brought back into a relationship with God that can free us from our sin and make us righteous. When sin first entered the world, what happened is that we were separated from the relationship with God that we were created to be in. Not together with him, separated from him. And since that first separation, what's happened is that that's actually caused sin to just increase in our hearts. If we sinned against God and created that separation, but then live it out more fully. And it holds us down in spiritual slavery and misery in this present evil age. But God has been promising ever since the beginning to do something about that separation. To bring us back into relationship with him and to change our hearts and to give us new desires for him. So let's just look at two of those promises right now. In Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 19 to 20, God says this through his prophet. He says, and I will give them one heart. And a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. That they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my God and I will be their people. Do you notice that relationship language? I will be their God and they will be my people. It's bringing back into relationship. And that goes together with that, that talk of a new heart and changed desires. Similarly, also look at Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three. God says the same sort of thing this way. He says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts 
And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Change desires. Put, God will put his law in our hearts. Deep within us. And again, you see that relationship. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. There's a relationship and changed hearts, and these things go together. So our problem isn't merely a doing problem. It's a relationship problem. Because being out of a relationship with God means that our hearts and our desires, they don't function like they're supposed to. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus can set us free from our sin. Hear this this morning. That Jesus can set us free from our sin and into a relationship with God. And the amazing thing about being restored to a relationship with God is that our hearts and our desires are transformed by it. We're changed by it. We're filled with new desires, joyful desires for obedience to God because of it. As he brings us into relationship with him by his spirit. That's the freedom that was promised in the Old Testament. And that is finally fulfilled through us, through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's talking about here in Galatians 5 verse 1 when he says this. For freedom, Christ has set you free. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free this morning. Listen to that. That's hope. But the thing is, for the Galatians, despite all this freedom from sin and into a relationship with God that would really transform them as his children, the, the Galatians were still tempted back into slavery. Look at our second point, tempted to slavery, in verses 2 to 4 with me. Look, I, Paul, I say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. We won't go through this in detail, but the point is this. Paul knows that the false teachers were trying to persuade the Galatians away from faith alone in Jesus. And rather than live freely in relationship with God that they had because they were trusting in Jesus alone and what he'd done, the false teachers were suggesting that taking on the burden of the law would lead to a better life. It would add to the experience of your salvation. It would earn the favor of God. But that gospel formula doesn't work. Jesus plus anything is nothing. It's not going to work to add works to the free grace that we have in Christ. It's going to leave you with nothing. It enslaves you, and it cuts you off from a relationship with God. And Paul's not, he's not having any of it. That's why he speaks so strongly in this section. And it might seem incredible, I think, for us, that somebody that's experienced this kind of freedom will be tempted to leave it for slavery. But I think the Galatians were genuinely tempted, and I think that we are too, to go back into slavery. So if you bear with me, let's just try and think about slavery and freedom and that kind of temptation through an illustration. So my son, Aryan, has access to a relationship with me, a free access with me, because he's my son. And it's crazy, but Aryan can wake up at 2 a.m., upset, and run down the hallway. I hear his little feet, pitter-patter, 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 she's crying. And climb up into my bed and know that I'm going to love him. I'm going to work out what the problem is. He'll be loved. But the thing is, if you try that, Doug, if you try to come down the hallway at 2 a.m. in my house, I'm not going to give you a snack. (laughs) I'm not going to help you out, Doug. 
But why is that? Why does Aryan have this incredible access to me, but Doug and the rest of you don't? Why is that? It's because Aryan knows that I love him as my son. It's because he's my son. He's my son. And you aren't. And Aryan knows that I freely delight in him. He understands his free access to me as a beloved son. And he doesn't wonder. And he doesn't question. And he doesn't doubt on his way down the hallway into my presence whether he has done the right things. Whether he has sought me the right way. Or whether he has even known the right things about me. He just jumps on up into my arms. And that's the sort of freedom that we have with God. The freedom of access of beloved children. Beloved sons of God. So how backwards would it be then if Aryan started to construct some obstacles down that hallway? Because he thought an obstacle course would really impress dad. If I get over this first barrier, I'm going to earn his favor, his favor and he'll be happy with me and then he'll receive me into his presence. And it's preposterous, but we do that. In the hallway of our relationship with God, we put up a little, little barrier here and we think, if I just treat my wife the way that I'm called to treat her, if I treat my husband the way I'm called to treat her just for one day, then I'll be free to walk a few steps closer to God. And we think, if I, if I manage not to lust today, to treat relationships the way I'm supposed to, then I'll have the freedom to walk just a few more steps down towards God. He'll be pleased with me. He'll let me come into his presence. If I share the gospel with that person on the bus, I keep sitting next to them, then God will really be pleased with me. I'll have earned his favor. He'll let me come into his presence. And so on and so on we go. We construct these barriers and we imprison ourselves under our works because we've actually preferred our own works then for the grace that God has given us freely in Christ as his children. But what's the result of that? Have you thought about the results of what happens when we do that? It's brutal. We don't end up working in freedom. We don't walk in freedom as sons that way. We actually live with immense guilt. Maybe you feel that this morning. You feel the weight of trying to live by your works and you feel the weight of shame and of guilt. It's brutal. Or on the other hand, maybe if you're fairly pietistic and a little proud, pretty confident of your actions, maybe it leads the other direction. You walk around with your sanctimonious head held high. I have earned God's favor. But the result of living under the burden of laws and our own earning, it's worse than guilt and it's worse than false piety. In fact, Paul says trying to add to the gospel by your works will actually cut you off from it. You'll be left with nothing. Come the judgment when you stand before God and you say, God, look at, at my works. Look at what I've done. At what I've done. I, I'm right to come into your presence. I have freedom of access to you. He'll say to you, no, you don't. Away from me. He'll say, the blood of my son does not cover you. The righteousness of my son that you receive by faith isn't received by you by faith. You put your works there instead. Out of my presence. This is why Paul said, could say in verse 4 so firmly, 
You are severed from Christ. You have fallen from grace. Relying on your works won't earn God's approval. It'll earn you his judgment. But all the while, you know what God wants from us? He wants us to live as his beloved children. He wants us to live with that freedom of access to him that comes because we've trusted in Jesus and we're his sons. Free access into his presence to receive his love, not because of what we've done, but because he loves us as his children, as we trust in Jesus. Ironically, I think we often turn to slavery of the law because we think that laws will make us somehow better people. Right? We think that a list of rules and a list of tasks will make us better people. We think that will change us. The thing is, only a relationship with God will truly set you free from your sin and change you from within, from deep within. Look at verses 5 to 6 in our last point this morning that we're set free to righteousness. For through faith by the Spirit, sorry, for through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So the truth of the gospel is that there's actually three different aspects to our relationship that we have with Jesus. One, we know that by faith as we trust in him, God sees us no longer as sinful. That we have a status of righteousness by trusting in Christ. That God looks on us the moment that we believe, the moment that we put our faith in Jesus, not because of what we've done, simply by trusting in him, he looks at us and he sees us as righteous. The blood of my son covers this one. The righteousness of my son counts for this one. He is good. He's right. That's the first aspect of righteousness, a status of righteousness. The second, though, is this idea of a future righteousness, the hope of a future righteousness. We have the hope that one day God will finally declare over us that we are righteous when he judges all mankind. That's why Paul says what he does in verse 5. To the Spirit, by faith, as we trust in Jesus, we ourselves eagerly wait, it's not happened yet, for the hope of righteousness. We're waiting for that righteous vindication from God. When he opens the book, he looks at your life, and he declares for all to see, Jesus' righteousness counts for them. Come into my kingdom. That's the hope that you all have here, Christ City, this morning, who are trusting in faith in Jesus, that one day you're, you're stand before him, you're going to stand before God, and he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant, on the merit of what Jesus has done. Finally, declare it over you. So that's the first, that's the second aspect. So the first is this righteous standing. The second is this hope of future righteousness. But the third is a point I really want to pull out here. The third idea is the way that even though we aren't righteous on our own, now by faith in Jesus, God is doing something to produce righteousness in us deep within. Even now that he's changing us. He's moving us from where we were in sin and making us more and more righteous, more and more like Jesus, and he'll continue that work to the end. The thing is, despite our pragmatism and our productivity and our belief that rules make us better people, the reality is that a law can't make you a better person. 
Allah can't do that. Only this relationship with God can do it. Which is why Paul says what he does in verse 6. He says, in Christ Jesus, look at this, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. He's saying the laws don't count for anything. That doing this or not doing that, it doesn't count for anything. But you know what does count? You know what does produce righteousness in you right now and change you to a different person? It's something else. It's faith working through love. Look at that in the, in the rest of the verse there. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but faith working through love. Paul knows that, that your faith and your trust in Jesus radically changes you as you've been brought back into relationship with God and his love comes into your heart and you now live your life in faith, in love for him and for others as you've been changed by his gospel and changed by his grace. Real, genuine faith in Jesus always works righteously. It always lives a life out of love. Not out of obligation, but because of love. Because you've experienced the freedom and the love of this relationship with God. All right, so I think we need an illustration here. But I think it's intuitive to us. I think that you've experienced the way that a relationship makes all the difference, even in your own life. Maybe you've, maybe you're the kind of person that's a little bit of a surly person, a little salty with some of your casual acquaintances, some of your family members. But you have that one relationship that's changed you, that you're different in. You have that one friendship where you'd do anything for that person because you love them as a friend. And that relationship has changed you somehow, at least in that relationship. Or maybe you've experienced a romantic relationship or you've seen somebody that this has happened to and you're like, man, so-and-so used to be kind of terrible. But now that they're in this relationship of love with so-and-so, I mean, their attitude's changed. Their behavior's changed. Uh, their clothing has changed. You know, the list goes on and on and on. Somehow that person and that relationship of love hasn't improved them. It's changed them. Or maybe we've experienced in the way that, that you've had a group of friends somewhere. You got into that group of friends and somehow they elevated who you are. Your behavior changed when you were around them. Improved you for the better. I mean, on the other hand, by the way, we know that that works in the converse too, right? When you're hanging out with a bunch of people that aren't, great. And their behavior changes you. The thing is, relationships have the power to change radically. So how much more than a relationship with God? How much more would that transformation happen when you, a sinful human being, are reconciled in relationship with the God who the Bible declares is love? As you see God who is love, so you can see God who is holy, who is the creator and sustainer of all things, who called out of nothing the existence of everything that exists. As you see him humbly take on human flesh out of love for you, come to this earth and die to save you. And then as he looks you in the eyes and says, come here, come into relationship with me. I know your sin. I know what you've done, but I love you. The blood of my son covers you. Come into relationship with me. I love you. How much more would that change you? It, it changes you. It makes you free. It changes who you are. It causes you to love God 
It causes you to love others. And it causes you to desire to follow him and to obey him. Your desires are changing. All of a sudden, you have all these new desires in your heart as you've experienced and know the gospel. And you're wondering, where do these come from? I want to read the Bible all of a sudden. I want to serve people. I want to love people. I want to live my life in obedience to the word of God. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, he was talking about this encouraging way that he knows that salvation has taken root in their lives. And he says it's because the word of God came to them and they received it with full conviction by the Holy Spirit. They're being changed. Wanting to obey, wanting to love, wanting to follow God from the inside out. That's what happens when we're brought into a relationship of love with God. We're freed to righteousness. That's why John could say so confidently in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, he said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And look at this, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And knows God. This is freedom, to be freed from sin and into a relationship of love with God, to be known by him and to know him intimately. And then for us to love as we have been loved, so it changes who we are from the inside out. It is for, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. That's the good news of the gospel. And as we close this morning, I want you to consider this. Outside the Auschwitz gates, there was a sign. And the sign said this. It said, work will make you free. Your work as an autonomous human being, someone who thinks they are free, it will never bring you freedom. And like the Auschwitz sign, it's actually this thin, false promise of life that's false, that really leads to death. On the other hand, you know what will bring you freedom? Your submission to Jesus and your faith in him. Trusting in him and what he has done. Being brought by him back into a relationship with God. That has the power to set you free. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, I don't know where you're at. Maybe this is landing on you. In some ways, for the first time, where you're realizing, I, I, maybe I'm not as free as I thought I was. Maybe I do have a desire problem. I mean, some of the things that we've talked about already have landed on you, and you're like, that's, that's true of me. I'm stuck here, just like Brian's been saying. If that's true, won't you hear the good news of the gospel? That you can come to Jesus. That you can repent of your sin and receive what he's done for you and that you could never do by faith and that he can change you. He can set you free and you will be free. Or on the other hand, maybe for the rest of you, the question is not so much how can I be set free the first time, but, but more about how can I learn as a Christian that is free to walk in the freedom and increase in the freedom that I have with God? How can I, how can I live this out? let's be honest, for all of us, we still struggle with sin, don't we? Right? Even those who have new desires in us. So how do we grow in those new desires? How do we grow in that freedom? How do we increase in it? Well, what we need is a new life that proceeds from a transformed heart. And we realize now, I think, I hope that that heart of transformation only comes from that relationship with God. Only comes from knowing him 
deeply, savoring who he is and what he has done, worshiping who he is and what he has done, drawing close to him in faith. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says it this way. It says that we're not changed by our doing, but by our beholding. It says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. So we tend to be pretty pragmatic people, and we ask, what should I do? How can I be changed? What box can I check off? And I think that's not the right question to ask at all. I think the question here to ask is, how can I draw closer to this God? How can I know him more deeply and more intimately so that I rejoice in his gospel and in his love and it radically changes me from the inside out to walk in freedom by the Holy Spirit? That's the question. So just a couple things to you as we, as we close here. There's a few ways we can do this. One, how is your prayer life? Do you commit to drawing near to God in prayer? Do you pray through the word of God? There's a number of people you can talk to in this congregation who can help you learn to pray through the, the word of God. It's a very, very helpful thing to learn. And it's going to help you grow to know God more. Do you love his word? Do you read his word? It's amazing. We have a God who's not silent. We have a God who has revealed himself in the Bible. Do we, do we love that? Do we draw near to him through it? Do we open up the pages of scripture to understand and to learn and to grow and to, and to pray, God, show me who you are in your word that I might know you. Or we have the incredible means of grace of getting to know the truth about God more as we worship him in community. Are you drawing near to one another, not just to hang out and to eat awesome food that Vancouver has to offer, offer but also to encourage one another in the gospel? Also to speak words of encouragement and faith to each other so that you'll grow to love Jesus more. Or do you prepare on a Sunday morning to come here? This is a means of grace to us to grow to know God more, but, but do we just kind of roll out of bed and show up just in time or maybe a little bit late? When we have the opportunity to, to wake up a little bit earlier, pray, open God's word, maybe just read a psalm, and then ask him to help our hearts be prepared to see him to know him, to love him, and to be changed by him. We have been set free for freedom. We have means of grace to help us grow in it. Christ's city, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm. Do not be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come to you this morning just thankful for your grace. Thankful for your gospel. Thankful that you are a God that hasn't left us stuck in our sin, but has made a way for us to be forgiven for it, brought into a relationship with you, and then changed from the inside out as we trust in Jesus and learn to know you more. Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, we would be drawing near to you. That you would make us confident children who run down the hallway of your grace and love with faith. And come into your presence freely and often. Oh, we ask these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.